Our Father, it's a tremendous privilege we have to study your word, to uh, fellowship around the teaching of your word, to be reminded of all of the many uh, wonderful things that you have freely given to us in our salvation, helping us to understand that we are not only set free in terms of uh, our liberty in Christ, but we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies and given not only all of the spiritual resources we need in order to uh, live out this new spiritual life, but also we've been given the Holy Spirit who uh, indwells us and empowers us and fills us with your word. Father, we pray that as we study this evening, as we reflect and remember and review, that we can put these concepts and these important doctrines together because they are the foundation for our thinking about our Christian life and living for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 8. Last week we came out of uh, Romans 8, 28 to 30. And now we're in the last section, the last nine verses of this wonderful chapter and focusing on these uh, various questions that Paul raises to drive home his point. These last nine verses not only serve as a conclusion, as I pointed out last time, to the uh, to chapters six, seven, and eight, but they also form a conclusion to the entire first eight chapters of the epistle, and at the same time they form a transition to what is coming up in chapter nine, which is a major shift in focus to God's plan for Israel. A major theme in in Romans, as we have seen, is God's righteousness. And how do we as fallen sinners have any kind of fellowship or rapport with God who is perfectly righteous? Uh, This has been demonstrated that man is unrighteous in chapters uh, 2 and 3. We've seen that um, the only solution to that is the imputation of righteousness, which we'll review tonight. And that covered that, that and justification are covered in the last part of chapter three and chapter four. Chapter five formed the transition to chapter six. Chapter six focuses on how the justified person is supposed to live. That's sanctification or the spiritual life. That's those three chapters. Then coming out of this chapter, the question that is raised, if God is so faithful and God is so righteous, then what about the fact that the Jews seem to be getting shunted or set aside in favor of the Gentiles right now? Has God forgotten about his people Israel? And so chapters 9, 10, and 11 focus our attention on God's righteousness in relation to Israel and the promises to Israel. And when we get into those three chapters, there are some really wonderful things there, but there are some complicated uh, passages, some complex verses that we'll need to work through. But as long as we remember the context, then we can work our way through them without a lot of difficulty. But unfortunately, what happens when we sort of chop things up, people can read theology into various uh, various sections. Now, last time, <clears throat> as we looked at these verses, uh, we looked at uh, 31 and 32 primarily, and I pointed out that there are seven rhetorical questions that Paul uh, asks. Now, a rhetorical question is a question that a writer or an orator 
uses in order to focus the thinking of his audience, but without expecting an answer. And so by asking these questions, Paul is doing a couple of different things. He's reminding people of what he has taught. He is focusing their attention on what the to think logically about the conclusions to what he has said, so that they can uh, he can lead their thinking to the proper uh, proper conclusion, which is uh, stated and emphasized in verses thirty five uh, down through thirty nine. That is the security of the believer in God's. Uh, faithfulness, because God is immutable, God is faithful, God is righteous, then therefore nothing can separate us from the love of God. And it's a great passage on eternal security. But before we get there, tonight we're going to look at verse 33 and perhaps verse 34. They are connected in terms of the fact that chapter, I mean, verse 33 focuses on justification. And justification is almost always set up or spoken of in a context where the opposite is emphasized as well, and that is condemnation. Uh, So justification is brought up in verse 33, and that leads directly to the next rhetorical question, who is he uh, who condemns? Now, these are the questions that are asked. Uh, The first is the general question, what then shall we say to these things? Having gone through the doctrines covered in the first eight chapters, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? And he concludes by saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this statement, if God is for us, who can be against us, is uh, what is known as an a fortiori argument an a fortiori argument. I was pleased last time I gave a couple of illustrations of an a fortiori argument, and somebody came up afterwards and said that having heard this referred to for years and explained for years, my illustrations were so simple that they finally understood it. Well, it takes a simple mind to give a simple illustration. Uh, An a fortiori argument, it's a Latin phrase for from the stronger, and it basically is the idea that of stating the strongest or the greatest uh, greatest premise, such as John, uh, John is worth a hundred billion dollars. If John is worth a hundred billion dollars, and the conclusion is he can pay your electric bill, because he has a hundred billion dollars, he has all of that wealth. Then a paltry hundred and fifty, two hundred, two hundred and fifty dollar electric bill would be nothing for him to pay if he is worth a hundred billion dollars. So the argument is from the stronger to the lesser. So if God is omnipotent and God is uh, able to handle every situation, then moving from that, God is able to handle any situation, any difficulty in your life or my life. If God is in control of human history, then that means that God is perfectly capable of handling uh, any problems that come up in your life or my life. So that's called an a fortiori argument. And the emphasis here is in the, um, in the context of dealing with adversity. Adversity is going to come up again in verse 35 when Paul asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. In other words, if we're going through difficult times, is that a sign that God no longer cares for us? Is that a sign that God is out of control, or our circumstances are so out of control that God is rather helpless? Now, that is a conclusion that some people have reached in trying to deal with uh, the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. Uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner, I believe, wrote a book a couple of decades ago called uh, Why uh, Bad Things Happen to Good People. And his basic conclusion was that God just can't control these things. He's not quite omnipotent. If he was, because of the way they define love, If God were really a loving God, then he wouldn't let these kind of bad things happen uh, to basically good people. But we understand from Scripture that God allows evil to run its course because God allows his creatures to exercise free will. They They can make good decisions or bad decisions. And if they make bad decisions, there will be bad and and worse consequences from those bad decisions. And in order to um, allow uh, <clears throat> human volition to run its course, that means God must allow those consequences to come. And so it's not that God is not in control, but that God is allowing mankind to work out Um, work things out according to his own own volition. As a result of that, there's going to be opposition to Christians. If you are a Christian living in the devil's world, we call it the devil's world because he's called the prince and the power of the air. He's called the God of this age. And because this is the devil's world, he has stolen the authority of it from uh, from mankind. Man was placed on the earth as God's representative. Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God created man in his image and likeness to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And when man disobeyed God, then Satan, by, by yielding to Satan's temptation in the garden, then the result was that Satan usurped a temporary authority over the planet. And therefore, we're living in the devil's world. When Satan tempted Jesus and offered him the kingdoms of the world, Jesus did not say, well, who do you think you are? I run things. You don't. You don't have the right to offer me the kingdoms of the world. Jesus didn't say that because he recognized that until Satan is finally defeated and destroyed at the end of the tribulation period, he has usurped this authority and the current environment is in the devil's world. Therefore, we are going to face adversity. We're going to face adversity just because we live in a fallen system, a corrupt system, and so there will be things that don't go right, and most things won't ever go the way we think they should. But then uh, we will also face overt hostility. And there are several examples of ways in which in our culture, we are, in fa- we are facing increasing antagonism as Christians. We have moved since 1963. That's a date that many scholars uh, uh, choose for a variety of reasons to the time when we moved into a post-Christian uh, environment. It has to do with various political decisions, various 
judicial decisions, things of that nature. Things had been deteriorating for uh, many decades, but finally, in, uh, due to a very variety of factors, by 1963, we could say we have moved beyond, uh, in our culture, moved beyond the influence and, and sort of used up the last part of the legacy of the uh, Puritans and evangelicals who founded this country. Now we see different ways in which we are attacked. One way in which we are attacked is uh, now some 12 years uh, or 11 years or so after the attacks on 9-11, the media often labels conservative Christians with the same broad brushstrokes as Muslim extremists. One fundamentalist is the same as another fundamentalist. Just because you're, one's a Christian or one's a, a, uh, a Muslim doesn't make it any different. You're, you're a, uh, an extremist, therefore you are a problem. And we see this bubbling up if you pay attention to some of the blogs and some of the news items that are coming out after this uh, horrible thing that occurred in Boston this last uh, this last week with the uh, the explosions, uh, the bombs that were set off, you already have some people saying, "Well, this type of bomb is typical of right wing extremists." And they, they never say it's left wing extremists. They never quite admit that, but it's right wing extremists. It's probably uh, somebody from some uh, some Christian group or some. Uh, right-wing, ultra-conservative group, and, and so they begin to attack uh, uh, Christians and, and that, that uh, fundamentalist Christians are just the same as fundamentalist Muslims. But, but nobody ever stops and asks them, say, well, how many times do we have uh, Bible-believing conservative Christians going around uh, blowing themselves up to kill other people in order to make their point? Now, you may have some... Body, some Catholic extremist doing uh, terrorist activities in um, in Ireland or some things like that, but we're not talking about about that. We're talking about conservative Bible believing Christians. It just doesn't happen. They don't do things like that. Uh, you may have uh, some radical pseudo Christian groups like the Aryan Brotherhood are some others that do some violent things, but they are not conservative, Bible-believing uh, Christians. So the world seems to always, uh, uh, it seems to be attacking more and more uh, uh, various Christians. Another way in which we've seen this is that for the last two or three decades, the civic observance of Christianity and nativity scenes at Christmas and resurrection scenes um, or resurrection celebrations, Easter resurrection um, motifs have been have been challenged. It seems to be okay in some places for an Islamic crescent to be permitted or for a Jewish menorah to be permitted, but not a nativity scene. Uh, <clears throat> in New York City, where these have, uh, where nativity scenes have been banned. Uh, lawyers argued that Jewish and Islamic signals ha- symbols had a cultural or secular dimension, but that uh, nativity scenes were purely religious and so had n- no place in the uh, 
worship or in, in in the Christmas holiday. Another event that happened very recently, just within the last uh, month, a school principal in Alabama made national news by prohibiting any mention of Easter. Easter bunny, Easter eggs, because it might be a religious offense to non-Christians. And what was sad to me was as I listened to all of this, you know, discussion about this, I never heard anybody stand up and say, well, wait a minute, the term Easter really comes out, uh, has its derivation from uh, Ishtar, the pagan goddess of fertility. That's where you get the bunny and the eggs. Uh, there's no bunny uh, hopping around outside of the empty grave, uh, when they sto- when the stone rolled back, there there weren't painted eggs inside of the tomb that uh, Mary uh, that the two Marys suddenly found in their early morning Easter egg hunt. That these whole, that all of these trappings that they're attacking have nothing to do with the resurrection story at all. But nobody ever said that. It's that, like these traditions that have uh, attached themselves like Velcro to a biblical event uh, are, are the real issue. So uh, there was a lot of uh, to do about that. And then and now in Texas, and you can uh, uh, Google this, look this up, do a little research, uh, a in, in Texas, about 80% of the school districts in Texas and many other states have adopted a curriculum that is blatantly pro-Muslim. Uh, it's called the um, C-Scope curriculum, and it compares, the, it does different things, like in the history it compares uh, those who were engaged in the Boston Tea Party, the Patriots that incidentally were being honored by Patriots Day, which is when the Boston Marathon is run, uh, that those who are engaged in the Boston Tea Party are really terrorists, and what they did at the Boston Tea Party was an act of terrorism, and therefore these uh, those Christians are not any different from Islamic terrorists. And this has been uh, adopted by... Uh, the text uh, uh, been val- uh, uh, verified by the Texas legislature, and uh, part of the problem is there's a lot of secrecy involved with this. And they've had uh, days when they've had their students all where all the women had to wear uh, hijab and dress like that, and but they would never uh, do that with um, uh, with Christians or uh, let everybody wear a cross one day so they could see what it was like maybe to be a Christian. So this has been accepted, and uh, a lot of people are waking up to this uh, right now. In 2009, an activist judge in New Hampshire ordered a homeschool mother to stop homeschooling her daughter because the little girl, quote, reflected too strongly, unquote, her mother's Christian faith. So here we have a judge telling a mother that she's got to put her child in um, public school because she's communicating too much Christianity to her children. Uh, Media Matters, which is a nonprofit media watchdog organization, on the liberal side, stated clearly in its application to the IRS for 501c3 status that it would be an anti-Christian organization. And they were given, of course, uh, nonprofit status. Uh, bumper stickers have been seen saying, so many Christians, so few lions. 
the overt hostility to Christianity increases. Just um, recently in the news as well, a German family was seeking asylum, political asylum in the U.S. from Germany because uh, the Germans were going to enforce uh, force them to quit homeschooling their children and put them into uh, public schools, and so they were seeking um, asylum here, and our uh, pr- uh, president and his administration are not going to grant them asylum and send them back. So here they're being overtly persecuted for their Christian beliefs, and we're not going to protect them. And then recently, and I sent this email, had this email sent out to everybody, uh, an Army officer, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Rich, uh, told other officer, officers and soldiers at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Kentucky that um, specifically Christian organizations like the American Family Association, the Family Research Council, are domestic hate groups because they oppose homosexuality. We're going to see more and more of that kind of thing. Uh, if we accept homosexual marriage, then when anybody who speaks out against that will be considered to be a hateful person. And that's me, that term hate is being redefined as if you disagree with the, what is politically correct, then you are, uh, you know, a hate monger. And so this just goes on and on, and we are living in a time of hostility, increasing hostility uh, toward Christianity. The reality is God is greater than all of this, and even if we end up uh, going to the lions like the Christians did in ancient Rome, God is greater than uh, government. God is greater than any opposition, and so we need to trust the Lord, and uh, he is going to uh, provide for everything. So when we ask the question, who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can ultimately destroy us or destroy our salvation. This was emphasized in Romans 8.32. Again, he he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He would not spare his own son in the same way that uh, pointed out last time that Abraham would not spare his own son, would not withhold uh, from God because Abraham understood that God would bring him back to life even if he did. Now, I pointed out from that, that, that verse that this is a great verse for understanding substitutionary atonement, that he delivered him up for us all. And we have passages like Matthew twenty twenty eight, Luke twenty two nineteen. Uh, John 13:37 that used this same Greek preposition huper as well as a second preposition peri, emphasizing substitution. Two great verses we've seen in Romans for this are Romans 5, 6, and 7. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for us in our place as a substitute. Romans 5, 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. It's emphasizing substitution. Christ died in our place. That led to the next statement, our question on Paul's mind. He shall then he says then, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now I want you to just 
hold, maybe turn the page back or look up to the top of the page to the first verse in this chapter. This verse says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That is a clear statement coming out of Roman, everything Paul has said up to this point, that there's no condemnation against the believer. Now, Paul is reminding us of this in verse 33. Who then can bring a charge against God's elect? And he answers it, at least the way it is translated in the New King James Version, it is translated, uh, it is God who justifies as if it is an answer. Now, some of you may have a different translation, or a translation that handles that differently. The problem in the Greek is that there are no punctuation marks. And so generally speaking, most translations handle this as a, the questions in the first part of the verse, and then it is God who justifies is an answer that's given, moving us to the next point. And that's how the New King James handles it, New American Standard, NIV, and a few others, but some may be a little different, so I just wanted to raise that point so that if yours reads differently, uh, you'll know why. Uh, it sh- I-, I believe that the second part of the verse is the answer to the first verse, and we'll look at this as we go through uh, the passage. Now, the main verb that is uh, used in the first part of the verse, who shall bring a charge against God's elect, really clues us in as to what's going on here. Uh, the verb is pronounced in Kaleo, it's got a G there in the transliteration, but when you have a, a gamma and a kappa, a GK combination, or a double G combination like evangelism or angel, angel is spelled A-G-G in the Greek, alpha, gamma, gamma. When you have that kind of a GG or GK combination, it's pronounced NK. So it's pronounced inkaleo, not egkaleo. And it means to call in somebody. It's The root is kaleo, which means to call. For example, we studied that root word in verse 28. Uh, those who are the called according to his purpose, that's the root word. But it has this en preposition to it, which gives it a, a different meaning. Uh, at its root, it would have the idea of to call in somebody, but it's used in the context where you're calling somebody in in order to answer certain accusations that are brought against them. And so it came to mean to accuse someone or to bring a legal accusation against someone in a court of law. So what we see, again, is the context here is not experiential relationships, but legal standing. And I remind you of that because this is what's so important in understanding the biblical teaching on justification. Justification doesn't mean just as if I had never sinned. That's one of those little sayings that people come up with and they think it helps them remember it. But justification doesn't mean it's just as if you never sinned. You have sinned, You are, but you are credited legally with the righteousness of Christ. 
So all of this has to do with legalities, with the courtroom of God. Righteousness is a term that has to do with the standard of God. The same word that's used for righteousness is also used for justice in both the Hebrew in the, of the Old Testament and Greek of the New Testament. So that, so that when we read these terms, they drive us to understand this as a courtroom setting that in justification we are declared righteous. That doesn't mean we are righteous. It doesn't change our makeup. This is the idea that you get in Roman Catholic theology, is that there is an infused righteousness so that a person becomes morally changed. We're not morally changed. We are our legal standing before God is what is changed. It's, uh, this is the uh, historic understanding uh, of the Protestant doctrine of justification by, by faith. Now, he asked this question, who shall bring any charge or, uh, against those whom God has chosen? Now, this term... Uh, that is used for uh, God has chosen, that is often translated God's elect, has an interesting background to it. It's the word eklektos. We get our English word eclectic from it, choosing different things to put things together rather than and you might have somebody who's purely conservative, somebody else who's purely liberal, and they're going to pick and choose different things to create sort of a patchwork quilt of ideas. That would be called an eclectic system because they've chosen different things. That's the root word eclectos. Now, this is often thought to refer to God's selection of individuals for salvation. But again, that's not the best idea. And it is, I've dealt with this pretty much back in Romans 8, 28, uh, 29, uh, and 30, that in terms of understanding the calling of God and, uh, and predestination. But the word uh, eklektos was not used there. And we get an idea of it, and I pointed this out when I came back from Israel last year, the doctrine of the magnum bar. And if you don't remember or you weren't here, one of my favorite things in life is ice cream. I could just live on ice cream, good ice cream, not some of the cheap swill they serve at some places, but it's got to be good ice cream. And a lot of ice cream bars that you get in America, you go into some some uh, uh, convenience store, and they really don't have good quality ice cream in their ice cream bars, but Magnum bars are really good quality ice cream. And they, sh- they, they really have a wider variety of flavors in uh, countries outside the U.S., but they started uh, selling these in the U.S. not long ago. But anyway, so in Israel, I had a habit of having one or two or three a day whenever we would stop. And one that, and I, I kept trying to learn to read the Hebrew writing and the labels, because modern Hebrew is a little different, and they have a funny way of, um, it's not really a funny way, but they have a very sophisticated way of taking root words that were, that I would know from biblical studies, and then they 
add a lot of different suffixes and prefixes to them in order to uh, allow these words to work with, with a lot of modern vocabulary. So you might have a basic word such as rafa, which in Scripture talks about health or healing, and um, uh, that becomes a term for a doctor. A form of it becomes a term, a feminine form would be perhaps a term for a nurse or a hospital. All these other things would be built off of that same basic uh, biblical root. I was asking the guide, I said, okay, this is Shakadim Mabacharim. What does that mean? And he said, that means choice almonds. And as I looked at it, I immediately picked out that the second word is mabokharim, and the three consonants in the middle, the B, uh, it's a hard bachar, that's the word for election or elect in Hebrew. That's the counterpart to eklektos. And I thought about that, and it's one of those things where the lights go off and you realize that that one of the that the idea here isn't selection in terms of choosing one person, but the but looking at it as a group, as a collective whole, that this is a choice group, emphasizing the quality of the group. And then as a result of that, as I did some additional study with various uh, writers, uh, this has been set forth by a number of people as the primary meaning of the uh, Greek word eklektos and the doctrine of election in the New Testament really focuses on a collective sense and it focuses on the qualitative aspect of um, of the body of Christ and this is reinforced by the fact that in the Hebrew or in the Greek here in the word eklektos there is no article in the Greek. Now, I'm getting into a lot of technical grammar here, but it's important in terms of understanding the difference. In English, we have an indefinite article and a definite article. A or an is an indefinite article. So I could um, hold up a piece of paper and, this, and say, this is a piece of paper. And it's just sign of a generic, it's one of, of many pieces of paper. But if I say, this is the piece of paper then I'm indicating its individuality and distinguishing it from all other pieces of paper. That's how the definite article works in English. Technically, it's improper in Greek to refer to the article as a definite article because there's no indefinite article. There's no a or an. You either have a word with an article or or it doesn't. And there's about nine different ways in which the Greek article can function other than just distinguishing this one thing from all the other things in its class. And this is uh, part of what happened, what's going on in, in John chapter 1 when John says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. There's no article with theos there, the word for God, and it's emphasizing the qualitative aspect of the noun, not the not distinguishing it. So it's not saying the word was the God, but the word was God, had all of the attributes, all of the qualities of God as, as uh, part of its nature. And this word, eklektos here, doesn't have an article. 
So it's emphasizing the qualitative aspect of this group. It's in the plural, indicating a collective. Uh, so it is, it's a collective noun where it's emphasizing the quality of the noun. So this reinforces the idea that this should be understood. Who shall bring a charge against God's choice ones? If you are part of that group of God's choice ones, and you are if you put your faith alone in Christ alone, then you are in Christ, so you are part of that choice group known as the saints uh, in the church age. If you're part of that choice group, then the implication is there's no one greater than God, there's no one who can bring a charge against you, that is, a legal accusation against you. Now, the reason I have this slide with Judges 2016 there is because in the uh, uh, New King James Version, it translates uh, Bahar there as choice. Among all this people, there were 700 choice men. That was This had to do with the battle with the tribe of Benjamin refers to them as 700 choice men. So there's an Old Testament example of how this word is used to indicate uh, the qualitative aspect of a group. Now the question is asked, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is, it's God who justifies. What's the implication here? The implication is that if God has declared someone to be just, then no one, no one can appeal that decision because there's no higher court. No one can bring a charge against us. And this is just great news for us to understand that the implication of the, one of the implications of the doctrine of justification by faith is we're declared not guilty. We're declared righteous so that that can never be reversed. That can never be turned back. We have a security in our salvation that can never be lost because there is no one who has more power, more ability uh, than God to bring a charge against us and to overturn his decision. We are declared righteous. Now, this has a certain implication I want to connect it to a verse that we've studied uh, several times, and I think it's important to just kind of tie some of these concepts together for us. Uh, in Colossians 2, 12 through 14, back when we studied Colossians, I spent quite a bit of time on this, and uh, just I, I pulled this slide out from that series because uh, it helps us to see the flow of what Paul is saying there. In him, verse 12, in him... That means in Christ, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, at the instant that we're saved, we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that identification places us in Christ. This is a specific term Paul uses a lot to talk about our new legal standing before God because we're in Christ. We're covered by the righteousness of Christ. In him you were baptized. Past tense, that happened at the instant that you were saved. Uh, in him you were baptized. When you were buried with him in baptism, in or by which you were raised together with him. So this is what happens. A water baptism pictured this. At the instant we're saved, there is a legal transaction that takes place instantaneously in heaven. 
Jesus Christ, using the Holy Spirit, uh, em- identifies us with his death, burial, and resurrection. So that just as in water baptism a person is immersed in the water, which indicates identification, when they come out there in a new state, the water pictures cleansing just as the utilization of the Holy Spirit would indicate positional cleansing from all sin. And so that baptism by the Holy Spirit is something that applies to us the, the, the work of Christ on the cross, so we're completely cleansed of all sin. Positionally, we are no longer unjust. We are declared justified. And then in verse 13, Paul says, and you being dead. This is a participial form, and it should be understood as a temporal participle. When you were dead, that is, in the past, When you were dead as an unbeliever, when you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, terms that refer to the fact that a person was not yet a believer, they were still in their sins or spiritually dead. When you were dead, he made you alive. That was the condition when we became regenerate, was that we were spiritually dead and then God made us alive together with him. And then we have another a participle here uh, for forgiveness. It, it's, it shouldn't be translated as a finite verb. It has a, probably a, a, ca- a causal sense to it or maybe a temporal sense. He made you alive together when he forgave you or after he forgave you all trespasses. And then the cause is given in the next verse because he had canceled that certificate of death when he nailed it to the cross. So the question is, reading through these two verses, when were your sins paid for? When were they canceled? When were they forgiven? Were they forgiven when you trusted Christ, or were they forgiven when Christ died on the cross? According to this verse, they they were forgiven when Christ died on the cross, when he nailed it to the cross. And then it's applied or realized in our at the moment of regeneration when we trust in Christ. So as we looked at Colossians 2.13, we saw the key idea here at the end is this participle, uh, having forgiven, which is charizomai. It's not the afiemi word for forgiveness, but one that refers to the gracious uh, canceling of a debt. And it has emphasizes grace, it emphasizes the cancellation of a sum of money or a debt that is owed, and it means to forgive or pardon an action. So if it's translated causally, it has the idea because he had already, see it's an aorist participle, so that means the action comes after the verb, because he had already forgiven or canceled our sins. He regenerated us because he had already canceled the debt in the past. Or it could be uh, understood as a temporal participle. Uh, he made us alive together with him after he had canceled the debt against us. They both make the same uh, the same point. So then I uh, point out that he made us alive together with him because he had already forgiven or released us from all our transgressions uh, when he canceled out the certificate of debt, verse 14. 
And so that word for cancel means to wipe out, to rub out, to erase, eradicate, or remove. That's why we can say there's no condemnation against us. That who can bring a charge against us? None, because the certificate of debt, the indictment, has been wiped out, blotted out, erased at the cross by the work of Christ, not by anything that you've done or that I've done. We can't do anything. It was completely done and finished at the cross so that the the charge, the indictment against us is dealt with and wiped out at the cross. Now we say, well, why isn't everybody saved? Well, the reason people aren't aren't everybody's not saved is because they're still spiritually dead. The indictment was wiped out at the cross, but their condition of being spiritually dead it continues. We're born spiritually dead, and that condition isn't changed until we trust in Christ. And at that instant that we trust in Christ, we are regenerated. Why? Because he's already canceled the debt. The legal debt against us was canceled at the cross, and it's applied, and we're regenerated when we believe. And that's when we become regenerate. Now, this word, exilepho, meaning to rub out or erase, is the counterpart to the Old Testament Hebrew word, maha, which also means to wipe something out. And we have it used in a couple of significant passages, for example, in Psalm 51.9, where the psalmist prays, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. It's that idea that God's going to cancel or wipe out the sins against us. Now, in that case, it's talking about forgiveness uh, for, for sins after salvation. Uh, God speaking in Isaiah fifty three twenty five says, "I even I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins." See, this is of great comfort to people because so many people live through the Christian life so concerned that they're going to lose salvation, so concerned that they're going to they've done something that and God's mad at them and God's not going to uh, save them, they're going to lose their salvation. And yet we have great comfort from both Old Testament passages and New Testament passages that God promises a complete eradication of sin that he will not remember it. That means he's not going to hold it against us ever again. So uh, the verse, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So let's quickly review how justification takes place. There are really two doctrines that come together in justification. The first is imputation, and the second is justification. Now, these are two words that are not part of everyday language. You're not going to go down to H-E-B and find somebody uh, using the word imputation. Now, and you're not going to find too many people talking about justification. You're not going to go down to... uh, uh, the local bar, and find anybody using those kinds of words. Uh, we've lost that. These are words that, that were common words in English uh, 50, 75, 100 years ago, a lot of which was the result of the influence of the Bible because people read the Bible. They, these were words that were used uh, to translate uh, the Greek New Testament, Hebrew Old Testament, into English. And so... 
they were part of everybody's vocabulary. But the more we move away from Christianity, one of the ways the devil attacks is through vocabulary. People don't read their Bible anymore. They lose biblical vocabulary uh, in the culture. So we sometimes have to re, uh, redefine these, these words. Imputation, in terms of the first point, is that in terms of just basic definition, uh, imputation is the action of the justice of God. So this is God functioning as a judge, whereby he either assigns condemnation or blessing to someone. He either condemns or bless, uh, where either con- condemnation or blessing is assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. And there are two categories of imputations, real imputations and judicial imputations. Now, let me, um, you're not going to find too many people who teach this anymore. It didn't, I didn't generate this. The only person I know, I think there were some older 19th century theologians that I've run across who used these distinctions. Lewis Berry Chafer did an excellent job uh, making these distinctions. Unfortunately, theologians today don't think very precisely, and I don't find anybody that, that discusses this. I know that um, when I went to Preston City Bible Church in uh, 1998, I went up there for an interview. That was one of the questions they asked was uh, uh, to explain the difference between real and judicial imputations. And that was on a number of ordination exams that were used in a variety of uh, doctrinal churches. If you had never read Lewis Berry Chafer, you would know those distinctions. And since Dallas Seminary basically quit, most professors quit requiring students to read Lewis Berry Chafer after the... Uh, uh, after the 70s, mid, from mid-70s on, uh, Preston City Bible Church had gotten a number of uh, questionnaire responses from candidates who couldn't answer the question. And uh, consequently, that they were all of the Dallas Seminary graduates had applied, and they had received not 100 from Dallas Seminary graduates, but over 100 applications for the uh, position. They all got thrown in the, in the uh, trash because nobody knew how to answer this very basic question just because they hadn't read Ch- Chafer. These are two different kinds of imputations. Point number two is to define real imputations. Real imputations credit something to a person which truly belongs to him. What this means is that... Uh, what is being credited to somebody has some sort of affinity or some sort of uh, there's some sort of similarity between what is imputed and the target. There, there's a, a a compatibility between the two things. For example, in the Old Testament or in the Scripture, we're told that Adam's original sin is imputed to every human being who's a sinner. They have a sin nature at at birth. So that imputation of Adam's original sin, the guilt of Adam's original sin to a corrupt, sinful infant at birth, shows that there's a compatibility there. There's, there's a, a, an affinity between the sin nature and the imputation of Adam's original sin. In the same way, when a person is regenerated and they're given a new human spirit, which is oriented to heaven and eternality, 
uh, eternal life is imputed to that human spirit. So there is an affinity between what is imputed and that to which it is imputed. That's a real imputation. Real meaning there's a a a a, a real uh, similarity between the two. But in a and this is point three, the judicial imputation. There's a there's a disconnect between what's imputed and that to which it is imputed. They don't fit. They don't go together. It is simply a judicial declaration. For example, at the cross, you have the perfectly righteous Jesus Christ to whom is imputed our sins, or to whom are imputed our sins. And so he doesn't deserve, there's no affinity between his perfect sinless nature and our sins. So it's a judicial crediting of something that really doesn't belong to him, to him. In the same way, when we believe in Christ, his perfect righteousness is then imputed to us. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't coordinate with anything in our lives but it is judicially declared to be ours. So this is a judicial imputation given to us. Now, that distinguishes the different kinds. So when we say God imputes something to us, we're not saying it's something we deserve. It's not something that is natural to us. It is something that is purely the result of a legal declaration. Now, the fourth point is that imputation derives from a Latin term, imputare, which means, which is a, uh, comes, it's just like the Greek word legizomai, it's an accounting term, and it refers to reckoning or charging something to someone's account. If you've got a background in bookkeeping or accounting, then you understand this concept of imputing or crediting something uh, to someone's account. Uh, it would be comparable to someone who has a 300 credit rating uh, going to a mortgage company to take out a mortgage, and someone who is related to them, a father or mother or someone related to them who has a 790 credit rating comes in and says, I will co-sign on the loan so that the bank doesn't look at the lack of credit or the lousy credit of the person who is applying for the loan. They look at the credit of the person who's co-signing on the loan because they know that their their credit is what matters. They're taking uh, responsibility for the loan. So that's the idea. Imputation has this idea of legally crediting someone, something to someone's account. So the first judicial imputation that occurs at at uh, in terms of all of salvation is the imputation that happened in AD 33 when our personal sins are credited to Christ. This is what this occurred between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when God covers the face of Jerusalem, Golgotha, there with darkness so that no one can see. What is happening on the cross, this is the first time Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that point, the perfect uh, Lamb of God without spot or blemish receives in his person the uh, judicial imputation of our sins, and he becomes legally condemned, legally guilty for our sin and pays the penalty for it. Romans 5, 14, and 15 talks about this. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, 
that's the imputation of spiritual death, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, that's the imputation of Adam's original sin to all human beings, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. That's the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the many. So this is the second judicial imputation, which is Christ's divine righteousness to man. Uh, this is in Romans 5:16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sent. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift, that's Christ's incarnation and atonement, arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So Christ's righteousness is credited to us so that we can be declared righteous. And that's the seventh point. The result is then that man is declared righteous. He's not made righteous. Sin isn't overlooked. The penalty is paid for. It's not just as if I never sinned. We're declared to, by God to be righteous, not because of anything that we've done, uh, but because uh, we possess the righteousness of Christ. So here's a diagram. Here we are as sinners. We have no righteousness. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. At the cross, Jesus Christ, who's perfectly righteous, receives the imputation of our sins, our lack of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he who knew no sin is made sin. That is a judicial imputation. So that we who lack righteousness can be made righteous, that is a judicial imputation, so that our lack of righteousness is covered by Christ's perfect righteousness. And what God is looking at then is that perfect righteousness of Christ that we have, and on that basis, his righteousness, we're declared righteous, and God can bless us. This is by faith alone. This is what we saw in, Je- in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, in reference to Genesis 15, 6, uh, that at that point in uh, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham, God notes, Abraham had already believed in the Lord, and had, the Lord had imputed it to him as righteousness. And that imputation of righteousness comes from faith alone. The Old Testament also has a picture of this uh, where uh, Zechariah is having a vision, And God shows him Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. That's probably uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And Satan, the accusing one, is the one standing at the right hand bringing a charge against Joshua or attempting to. Okay? See, that's the question here in verse 33. Who can bring a charge against you? The only one who's going to try is Satan. He tried to do that with Joshua. But the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. This would be the angel of the Lord says to Satan, the Lord being God the Father, rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then in verse 4 we read, Then he answered, that is God the Father on the throne, and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, that's the cleansing of sin, uh, removed it from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And he said, I let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. The angel of the Lord stood by. So this is a picture of how we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And because of that, we are declared righteous. So the emphasis in verse 33 is to remind us that no one can bring a charge against us. No one's qualified to because we are among God's choice ones because we've had faith in Christ and declared just. Now, next time we'll come back and look at verse 34 because that raises the takes the question to the next level, who is he who condemns? Who can condemn us? And then it's a reminder, Christ died. Furthermore, he's risen, and he's the one at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. So because Christ is at the right hand of the Father, no one can bring condemnation because every time they do, he's just going to point to the cross and say, I paid for the sins there. They're taken care of. You can't, Satan can't bring a condemnation against us. And then that leads to the next great question, who will separate us then from the love of God? And the answer is no one. We'll get into that next time and finish up chapter 8. Father, thank you for this pointing out and explaining these things to us so clearly that our justification is not based on who we are, what we do. It's based upon who you are, your character, your faithfulness, your righteousness, and what Christ did on the cross. And, Father, this gives us great comfort, great security, that we can relax knowing that your love keeps us secure and nothing we can do, nothing anyone can do, no set of circumstances can bring a condemnation against us so that we're outside of your love. And we pray that you would help us to understand these things and encourage us with them. We pray in Christ's name, amen.